So my name is Jeremy. Welcome here. If it's your first time, we're so glad to have you. And if you've been here forever, we're still super glad to have you, even though we know each other well, all of our warts and all. Um, I'd like to start this morning with a little bit story, different story than I did last week. Last week was about a modern Christian martyr by the name of... Was anybody here last week? <laughs> a modern Christian martyr by the name of... Ronnie Smith, okay, we got to go back and rewatch the sermon, please help, um, but this year, today I'm going to do it a little different, not a sad story, let's do a little funny story just to encourage us, um, this is the story of the hunter and the bear, winter was coming on and a hunter went out into the forest to shoot a bear out of which he planned to make a nice warm coat. By and by, he saw a bear coming toward him and raised his gun and took aim. Wait, said the bear. Why do you want to shoot me? Because I am cold, said the hunter. But I am hungry, replied the bear. So maybe we can reach an agreement. In the end, the bear had eaten his dinner and the hunter was well enveloped within the bear's fur. We always lose when we try to compromise with sin. In the end, it will consume us. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nobody's got up and left yet, so we're still here. <laughs> That's good. I did not write that story myself, believe it or not. Um, Compromise leads to calamity. That's what I want you to get out of this. Compromise leads to calamity. This is a silly story, but life brings on much worse stories, does it not? That's a silly story, but life brings on worse ones. When we compromise, it really leads to calamity. Okay, a little bit different approach for you numbers people. Here's what it would look like, for example, if... 99% were good enough. Here's what would happen. If 99% were good enough, then every single day, the United States Post Office would lose 1.7 million pieces of first-class mail. If 99% were good enough. If 99% were good enough, then 200,000 people would get the wrong drug prescription each year. 200,000, you'd swap out heart medication for birth control. How would that work? Not too well. If 99% were good enough, then your drinking water would be unsafe for three-ish days per year. If 99% were good enough, then 2 million people would die from food poisoning every year. Compromise leads to calamity. Today we're going to the city of Pergamum. It's the third church in this tour of Asia Minor in the seven churches of Revelation series. And really we're seeing a church that's going to significantly struggle with compromise. And the reason for that is clear is because Revelation chapter 2 verse 13, here's a slide of it. It says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You are in the epicenter of Satan's authority. 
Last week, we saw the synagogue of Satan, and that was one thing, but we're going way beyond that. Today, we are in the throne room of Satan himself. Now, these are the words of Jesus. This is not the opinion of some preacher. This is not some guy railing on a soapbox about all the evils of the modern day world. This is Jesus Christ in red himself saying, you live in Satan's throne. You're in a bad spot, and I know that. So where are they? Well, here's a picture If you were to, okay, so this is the map. First city on the bottom in the big Bay Area, that's Ephesus. The one that got silted in was the biggest, most influential city. Then in second place was Smyrna in the smaller Bay, which still exists today with 2.5 million people. You saw pictures of that last week. And then up above it, the next one that's actually inland at the very top of the screen, that's Pergamum. Now, Pergamum, obviously does not have a bay, and so it loses the financial commerce of being a big trade city. But what it does have going for it is this. It is the provincial capital. Here's the county seat. Here is the Washington, D.C., if you will. It's not the same as New York City or Boston, but it is a very influential and powerful spot nestled here in inland Asia. So let's go there for a second, just so you can see a little bit more about Satan's throne, because we're sitting there going, okay, Satan's throne, what does that mean? That's what the commentators are doing too. It's a little bit tricky to figure out, but I'll give you some pictures of that area, and you can see what he means. Here's the, what's called the sacred way to Pergamum. Pergamum is the center of the emperor worship, since it's the capital, and so to get there, you have to walk down this sacred way as if you're on some pilgrimage to a special spot. Maybe you kneel along the way. Maybe you kiss a statue or pay homage to this or pay homage to that. Uh, and this is the path in which you would go. These are the very stones that were used back then. Here's a picture of the next one. And what you would see is the royal city itself is up on a hill. Not unlike a lot of ancient royal cities of the day because they want to be strategically located to see their attackers from far away. And there are also hills and mountains are a place of worship as well. A lot of times altars are built up high. Such is the case in this spot. You see the altar of Zeus here. Um, It's actually broken down and the place to find it is in Germany because when they came in a long time ago, they took some stuff and have not yet given it back. And so you can find Zeus's stuff in a German museum, but here is where the actual altar is. You can go there today and see this, you know, altar to Zeus above the city. So some commentators say, well, because it's the ancient site of the pagan religions, he must be referring to that. However, the majority of what I read, the commentators tend to lean more towards the emperor cult than the ancient paganism. That said, they're both there. So it's a big mess. But what you have in the provincial capital, even stronger than the other places, the other places are like we have certain feasts, you have to offer your sacrifice. There, it's like every day of the year, you'll see something like this, a Roman man in armor walking down the street, making sure that you are genuinely pledging allegiance to the king, not to the flag, not to the system, not to the republic, not to freedom, not to democracy, but to the man himself. Here's a temple of one of them in that very city. This is a temple of the emperor Trajan. When you become a Roman citizen, you are obligated to pay to Caesar what is Caesar's, and what Caesar thinks is his is everything because he's God. Therefore, you worship him. Now, that's an issue for Christians, obviously. And so, 
Jesus is coming to them and saying, hey, I know where you live. I know what's going on in this area. You live in Satan's throne room itself. This place is bad. And as a result, I have some very important words for you today. Naturally, then, I think we'll get to those words in just a second. But I think um, one of the questions that the people themselves would be asking is very similar to the questions you might be asking yourself is, okay, this is where I live. I can't really change it at the work here to make a living. Uh, what do I do? Like, how in the world do I live in a place like this? In Satan's throne, I'm a Christian. How in the world can I live? For example, let me give you an example back then, but you might see some very similar things today. One is, they had a number of what's called trade guilds, I think, like what we would call unions today, although these had even, depending on what type of union or trade guild you're, guild you're in, more um, requirements. And one of which was this, is you have to pay homage to a patron deity. And so if you're a member, say, of the stonecutter's masonry or the mason, do you worship uh, their patron deity or do you go through their stuff that they do. For example, if they have an annual picnic and you know that all your friends and bosses and coworkers are going to be there and that's where the contracts are going to be given out for the upcoming year, do you attend that picnic if at the same picnic they're also going to be taking a moment to offer sacrifices, libations, and offerings to their pagan god? Do I go there? I'm a member of this guild. I don't worship this God. It's part of the ceremony to worship this God, but I won't get a contract at the end if I'm not there. What do I do? Craig Keener gives some more examples. He says, what if my brother's wedding is catered by priest from the adjoining idol's temple and they offer a sacrifice to the idol and then everyone's supposed to come up in celebration of that and eat the meat? Do I eat that meat? Or do I offend my brother? What do I do? Since they are offering a sacrifice to the idol, should I even attend the wedding? Do you have questions about what weddings you should attend these days? Do I incur the suspicion of disloyalty to the state by not offering a sacrifice to the emperor? What happens if they ask me, as a stonemason, to carve a statue of a deity, or perhaps as a baker to bake a cake. Some within the church taught that accommodation is the wisest policy. Just be careful. Don't stand out. Try to blend in. Let the Holy Spirit do his work and it'll all be okay. Peacefully coexist with Rome. Others, on the other hand, refuse to compromise, such as certain stonemasons during the reign of Emperor Diocletian. Here's a slide. They refused to carve an image of this healing God that was also in the city. And they were executed as a result. So here's your contract. Carve, please, this statue of a pagan deity that we will worship. They say no. And they die. I don't know. Hypothetically speaking, is it possible in our day and place that members of a particular profession 
might get in trouble with their government or lose their business license if they refuse to perform their services for something that violates their religious belief. Is that possible? I think so. How do we live in a place like that? Church number three, Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Last time it was he who died and came to life. This time it's he who has the sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. Doesn't tell us here at all, but I wonder, was he a stonemason? Where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, for you have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. We'll talk about that in a minute. So that they might eat foods, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. For if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. There's that sword again. He who has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except for the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Three ways we'll approach the text today. They are a problem, a solution, and an application. I'll let you fill them in as you go. You can write that down or you can download these slides at home or on your phone. Problem, solution, application. The problem is this. You've heard it already. Compromise leads to calamity. Compromise leads to calamity. Earlier in our text, we heard the teachings of Balaam. And depending on how familiar with the Bible you are, you may go, oh yeah, I remember that story. Or you may be scratching your head saying, "Uh, remind me of what that was. That's in Numbers chapter 22. Here's a slide uh, if you... If you download it or write this down, it's fine. You can look it up later. I'm just going to summarize it. Numbers chapter 22 through 25 give the story of two people, one by the name of Balaam and the other by the name of Balak. Now, the way to tell them apart is this. Balak ends with a K. K stands for king. And we always remember Balaam because he's the prophet. He's kind of the main character in the story. But it's really Balak that gets the ball rolling He is unhappy with the Israelites in his area, and he wants to curse them. So he tries to bring in this prophet who is going to call down curses and, as a a result, damage this people group and give Balak an advantage. Balaam tries three times unsuccessfully to curse the people, and as a result, what happens is at not in chapters 22 through 25, but later Moses tells us he comes up with another plan and his plan is, okay, I'm unable to curse them, but let's see if they can bring a curse down on themselves. They have this body 
of law, this legal literature, if we can get them, God won't let me curse them, but if we can get them to break the law and compromise and sin, then they'll bring a curse down on themselves. And we don't even have to do it. And Balak says, sure. And what they do is they um, seduce the young men because as you can imagine, these young warriors going off to battle, coming home hot, hungry, hungry, tired, and ready to be encouraged, do what many a young sailor or young soldier does when they come back and they look for women and food. And as a result, Balaam and Balak offer these pagan women, here's a slide, and, these, and pagan food to these young, young soldiers and they go for it. Of course they do. They're tired, hungry, worn out. They're not being careful. And pagan food and pagan women make for very powerful tools of temptation. As a result, Israel is seduced and the pagan women are brought into the homes and the men are no longer loyal to their gods. They're more loyal to their wives. And as a result, they begin to participate in the pagan festivals. They worship and idolatry is introduced in Israel and God's wrath breaks out against them. Numbers chapter 25 says it like this. It very clearly and starkly it says, The people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel, this is why the New Testament says, Don't be unequally yoked. Yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And as a result, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. There can be no compromise with darkness. Compromise leads to calamity. Listen carefully. The people, Satan could not curse the people of Israel. Satan could not effectively curse God's people. But God's people could bring a curse on themselves. New Testament church, Satan can't condemn you. But you yourself are very capable of getting yourself in a lot of hot water. You can bring more trouble on yourself than the enemy ever can. Yes, he might kill you, but there is something far worse. Don't bring worse judgment upon yourself than what Satan can possibly do. There is no compromise with darkness. Well, in this situation, fortunately, there is one guy left, really, it seems, who is still passionate for God's law. The fire had not gone out within him. And you see it very clearly in a crazy way. And this sort of offends sort of modern Western readers. But I want you to see this so you can see how dramatically God hates sin and how powerfully God responds to it so that things in your life that are not in conformity to the word of God, you will respond in the same way. Not physically, but spiritually. The New Testament uses terms like put to death. Therefore, deeds of sexual immorality, of darkness, of da-da-da-da-da. And it's referring to these type situations where you see a dramatic response from God. Numbers chapter 25. What's the problem? The problem is calamity. Compromise leads to calamity. The solution is to come clean. Solution is to come clean. Here's how one guy did it in Numbers chapter 25. It says, Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought one of these Midianite women to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation, like in broad daylight. 
He doesn't care. They've lost their moral compass. There is no such thing to them as sexual immorality. They do what they want. As long as it's consensual, it's okay. Have you heard of that? Okay, so when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and takes a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber, found them doing what they were doing, and pierced them both at the same time, the man of Israel and the woman through their belly with one spear. Thus, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, this is what happened as a result of their idolatry. Those who died by the plague were 24,000 people. The Lord said to Moses, Good thing you had Phinehas. Good thing, man. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, the the priesthood in the line of Aaron. Thank you, Phinehas, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sins of the people. There is no compromise with darkness. Compromise leads to absolute calamity. The solution then is to come clean and in a dramatic way. New Testament church, be careful. Don't compromise. You've been lulled into complacency and acceptance and you think that everything is okay and it is not. It is not okay. We need, as Craig Keener says in his commentary, to wake up to the reality that the world and the church are locked in a fight to the death. James says it another way. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy with God? What do you want, the plague or a little persecution? Let's go for the persecution. I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy with God. 99% is not good enough. It'll never make it. Repent, Revelation says, therefore. Purge the evil from among you. If not, it's deja vu. It's Balaam and Balak all over again. In Revelation, Jesus says, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Come clean. Purify yourselves of worldly thinking and sexual immorality. I know there's sexual immorality out there today. I don't even have to guess. All I have to do is look at the Dear Abby column and it's ridiculous. Everything is okay as long as it's consensual. It is not okay. There is only one form of sex that is, and that's within your marriage. Anything outside of that is sin. Stop it there. Can you imagine how much better our world would be if people only had sex with the people they're married to? How many children would have fathers? STDs are virtually eliminated. Half our problems are gone. No infidelity in marriage. There we are. It's not okay. Compromise leads to calamity. Calamity. 
Cut it out. Kill it. Put it to death. What in your life do you need to cut out in order to come clean? What in your life needs to go? What is one thing that you yourself need to stop doing today? The problem is compromise. The solution is to come clean. The application, this is the way we're going to do it specifically. We want to train your brain to direct your heart. Train your brain to direct your heart. Here's the thing. Right now I'm coaching a little soccer team. People have sort of asked, we haven't heard any soccer illustrations. Here it comes. And it's fun because the little guys, they don't really know a whole lot. And so they're still learning the proper mechanics and stuff. And sometimes they get it right and the ball goes in the right direction. And sometimes they get it wrong. They get excited and they overcompensate. And over it goes. I mean, wide open goal, clear shot. Boom. Get so excited, kick as hard as they can up over the top. But what I tell them is you got to point your toe where you want it to go. They got to memorize this muscle mechanic so that when the adrenaline is flowing, the heat is on, it's an instant split-second decision. They're not even thinking about that they do it right. They do it the exact same every single time. It's muscle memory. You've got to train your brain to direct your heart. The same thing is true of you as a Christian. Your heart is a muscle. And what is going to guide that muscle is your brain. And as you train that brain, you direct the thoughts of your heart like a ski track in the snow. What do I mean by that? Well, you go cross-country skiing sometimes and you can see the woods that have no tracks and you can see the spots where people have gone. It is a whole lot easier to go down that tromp down track than to forge a new one. That's the thing. Every thought you have, every time you repeat that, you push that track down a little bit deeper in your mind. And as those neurons are firing and pathways are connecting, eventually you've got a well-worn path so that when something happens, you respond the same way every single time. Why? Because you've trained your brain that way. It's muscle memory at that point. It's a natural reaction. That's what you do. When this happens, this is how I react. Boom. Instant. But the thing is, the Bible tells us you're going to have to make some new pathways if you want to be a good Christian. You can't go back to that old way of thinking, that old way of doing things, which are really the same thing. The way you think is the way you behave. And as a result, Romans 12, 2 says it like this. It says, do not be conformed to this world. How do you want to stand out? How do you want to be different? How do you want to avoid compromise? Here is your answer. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. It's the opposite of conformed. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern, oh, what is the will of God? Should I go to this pagan feast or should I not? Should I be a part of this celebration or not? Should I go to the wedding? What should I do? How do I discern the will of God? By training my brain, but for the renewal of my mind, for what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is how we answer those questions living in a place like this. By training our brain, pushing down the path so that when we are thrown into the situation and Satan sucker punches us as we walk around the corner and it's all muscle memory, we're ready to go. 
We can't say, oh, hold on, devil, time out. I need to go think about this for 15 minutes while I decide how to respond to my temptation. (laughs) Thanks for putting that there. As soon as I go have a Bible study and talk to my pastor, I'll come back and let you know what I'm going to do. No, it's too late. Why do we memorize scripture? Why do we read our Bibles? Why do we pray? Because we're going to war. And when we're in the fight, there's no time to reload. You've got to be ready. Don't go to sleep. This is real. Wake up. When it happens, then it'll be very clear what kind of training you've done. The team that eats ice cream and plays video games and scrimmages will have one result. But the team that is disciplined and controls their diet and does the same silly, boring routine day after day, practice after practice, is going to come to the game and it'll be muscle memory and they won't even think about it and it'll win. So too in your Christian life. Yeah, daily devotions, church every week. Can I go to the lake? Well, sure, if you want to lose. But if you want to win, you need to train and discipline yourself consistently. Look, Romans 8, 5. For those who set their mind on the things of the flesh, well, they'll live according to the flesh. Of course they will. That's what happens. But for those who set their minds, they train their brain on the things of the Spirit, then they live according to the Spirit. What you think about is the way you respond. That's what happens. If you trained a certain way, you respond a certain way. Train your brain To direct your heart. That's how you're transformed. That's how you're renewed. That's how you're transformed and not conformed. That's how you overcome. Every single church in this series is told to overcome. To nikao. To nike. To win. To conquer. How do we win? How do we conquer? Train your brain. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Why? Is this just some mental academic exercise? No. This is the training that determines the course of your life. Another commentator, Douglas Moo, says it like this. The mindset you have is the heart attitude that will steer the course of your life. Your mind directs your heart. Don't let your heart direct your brain. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? The film that says, just follow your heart is from Satan. Your heart is sinful. Don't follow that. Read the Bible and do what it says and let it direct your heart. What are you going to do, young soldier returning from war? Pagan women and food are right in front of you. Temptation is knocking at your door. You don't have to go that far to find it. It found you. James Montgomery Boyce gives a story after World War I of a very similar occasion. This is in Christ called a discipleship. And what Boyce says is this. During World War I, <clears throat> one of my predecessors at 10th Presbyterian Church, Donald Gray Barnhouse, led the son of a prominent American family to the Lord. Awesome. He was in the service and he showed the reality of his conversion by immediately professing Christ before the soldiers in his military company. You know, he didn't keep quiet about it. He told them. Then the war ended and 
things are going to change. And the day came when he was to return to his pre-war life in the wealthy suburb of a large American city. He talked to Barnhouse about life with his family and expressed fear that he might soon slip back into his old habits. He was afraid that his love for parents, brothers, sisters, and friends might turn him from following after Jesus. I think Jesus said something about that in families, remember? Barnhouse told him that if he was careful to make a public confession of his faith in Christ, he wouldn't have to worry. He would not have to give up his improper friends. They would give him up. As a result, the young man agreed. Here's his plan, okay? Let's make this concrete. I'm a new believer. I don't know what to do. I will tell the first 10 people I run into that I'm a Christian. And he said, that's it. That's all you got, Lord. 10 people, but I'll do it. I will count them. I will make a list. And I'll tell the first 10 people I became a Christian. Well, the soldier went home and almost immediately, in fact, while he was still on the platform of the suburban station at the end of his return trip, he met a... What do young men want coming back from war? Yeah, he met a girl with whom he had already known a bit socially. Hey, welcome home. It's so good to see you. (laughs) She was delighted. Asked how he was doing. He told her, okay, here's number one. Greatest thing that happened, could possibly happen, happened to me. (gasps) You're engaged to be married? No, he told her. It's even better than that. In fact, I've taken the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. Her expression froze. Uh, She mumbled a few polite words and went on her way. Short time later, the new Christian met a young man whom he'd known before going to service. He said, hey, it's good to see you back. We're going to have some great parties. Come on over tonight. The guy said, number two. He said, I'm just become a Christian. Again, it was a case of the frozen smile and the quick change of the conversation. After this, the same circumstances were repeated several times. Young couple, two more friends. By and by, word got around. He'd become peculiar, religious, and who knows what. They may have even called him crazy. What had he done? He hadn't done anything yet. He just told them he was a Christian. But that confession aligned him with Christ and separated him from the world. See, there's no such thing as compromise. Compromise leads to calamity. You have to decide ahead of time what you're going to do. What if he hadn't decided? What if he said, okay, I'll just go to the one party or I'll just go on one date. All of a sudden he's going on two dates and three dates and four dates and before long this pagan woman is in his home. Idolatry comes. You have to train your brain, direct your heart and do it ahead of time. See, the problem is compromise, the solution is to come clean, and the application is to train your brain. Your church, you are in a fight. You're not in Old Testament Israel. You're not in World War I. But I dare say you're just about at the foot of Satan's throne. And you've got to decide what to do. Things are not getting better. They are getting worse. And if you want to hear more about that, you can come to the teaching seminar in a couple weeks as we talk about end times. But the thing is this, as you are placed here for such a time as this, you've got to train so that you're ready to go when the moment arrives. Now look, if you're on a soccer team or you're on any team, training's the same way. You do it individually, and you do it as a team, 
and you do it regularly. And so today I'm making the same applications to you. You've got to do it individually on your own. If you're on a track team, you've got to run on your own. Yes, you go to practice, but you run on your own. Same too, any other sport. You practice on your own. In the Christian life, you study, read, and pray on your own. That's an integral part of the Christian life. But then when you come to the team gathering, we have one every Sunday, by the way. You come to the team gathering, you're ready to go. You're not out of shape. You have something to share and contribute to the team. You're not lagging behind in the last place. Instead, you're pulling along the other people who need your help. Because you're in shape. You're ready to go. Here's the thing. Some people might say, well, one sermon, what's the big deal? And I'd, I'd, actually, I'd agree with you. One sermon, unless it's your salvation, may or may not change your life, but it's like investing the tiny little deposits over and over again, time after time, creates a regular rhythm of muscle memory so that when the moment comes, you're ready to go. It's not because you miss one day, no big deal. It's because you want that regular built-in pattern that this is what I do no matter what. When sin comes my way, boom, I respond. individual, community, and finally, it takes time. I was talking to one of my sons last night before bed. It was so funny. I, I'm trying to, you know, it's youth rec soccer, so it doesn't matter. You're trying to teach them to play different positions and stuff like this. And I say, well, hey, you know what? You did pretty well at that. You might want to think about trying some more of that. He's like, oh, man, I'll never be good at that. Like, well, you have to practice. It takes time. He's like, time, <laughs> Dude. No one is awesome right away. <laughs> like, no one is instantly awesome. Tiger Woods, whoever, name an athlete, they have hit the ball or whatever so many times. So when they go up for their 30-foot putt, they can do it blindfolded. They know exactly what that feels like. They just program in 30-foot. Oh, I've done 10,000 of these at my last practice. Boink. You're not going to be awesome right away. Don't expect to be amazing. And here's the crazy thing. I think you perhaps go to a sermon expecting the big secret this week. He's going to give it, and boy, I will win every victory all the time. No, it's just practice over and over and over and over and over again for the next 80 or 90 years of your life. And when you get it, then you're done, and it's time to go home. That's the way it is. You just practice and you practice and you practice. It's not meant to be a discouragement, church. That's meant to be an encouragement. So when you fail, you say, oh, get up. I learned from that one. Next, do it again, do it again, do it again. Keep going until it goes straight every single time. You feel like you're shanking it left and right. Get it figured out. Practice. It takes individual training. It takes community training, church, team, time. Problem. Compromise leads to calamity. Solution, come clean. Application, train your brain. Father, we thank you for the example of the church in Pergamum. Lord, um, much better to learn from somebody else's mistakes than our own. And yet we've made plenty. And I pray, God, that in making them, you'll help us not to repeat them. You'll teach us the way of truth, that we'll avoid the path of despair and darkness 
And you will cause us, Lord, to remain true to your word. We ask this, we pray this, and we believe this by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.